Welcome to Four Questions Four, a podcast by Osgood Hall Law School presenting great conversations about legal education, the profession, and the law. Today, Bob Wyatt, Executive Director of the Matart Foundation, one of Canada's oldest private foundations, will have four questions for Osgood Professor Adam Parishin on the topic of the role of charity. The Foundation and Dr. Wyatt, who has an honorary Doctor of Laws degree from Carleton University in recognition of his leadership in and stewardship of Canada's charitable sector have taken a leading role in helping to increase the charitable sector's capacity in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and at the national level. Professor Adam Parishan is an award-winning teacher and researcher in the areas of charity, trust, property, and personal income tax law. His research specialization in charity law is concerned with the various ways the law defines and celebrates charity, defined as doing good by others. His publications in the field are generally concerned with three questions. What constitutes doing good? Who qualifies as another? How and why does the law affirm, incentivize, and promote the voluntary choice to do good by others? He currently serves as an adjunct research professor at the School of Public Policy and Administration at Carleton University. He is also a board member for the Pemsel Case Foundation, a charitable foundation established to study and advance the common law of charity, and is a member of the Canada Revenue Agency's Charity Directorate Technical Issues Working Group. Welcome, Adam. Let's get started with question one. The We Charity scandal was a big charity-related news story this year. Much of the commentary on this scandal related to political ethics. But you wrote an op-ed for the Globe and Mail talking about another dimension to the story. What is this other dimension? Thank you, Bob. Thank you for for that introduction and um, for the opportunity to take up this issue. Um, as, As you alluded to, um, a lot of the early coverage, um, and, and frankly, the coverage since relating to the We Charity scandal um, seemed to be heavily focused on the political ethics dimension to the problem. And, you know, of course, there's, there's no need here to uh, elaborate on those concerns. The, the concerns over political self-dealing, um, allegations of a, a friends and family approach to doling out government contracts. Um, really attracted the lion's share, if not almost all of the commentary. And as a charity law lawyer, charity law professor, um, the, the aspect of that that stood out for me was that it was almost as though the charitable status of the we charity was just a peripheral detail. You know, it was it was just part of the, the background context. Um, and I'm not sure that a lot of the coverage really would have changed had the We Charity been uh, another nonprofit or even a potentially a for-profit, all of those political ethics concerns would have been, I think, would, would have been very similar. And so um, it occurred to me that there was another story here. Now, I know as part of the story, people rediscovered the wealth of information available on charities through the 
the information return charities file with the CRA called the T3010. And there was some commentary about that. But I think for those who think a lot about charity law, a lot about public policy as it relates to charities, there was a deeper story here about charity and its relationship to politics, um, charity and its relationship uh, with, with government. Um, and so when I was reflecting on that other dimension to the problem, you know, it occurred to me that whatever else we might say about our, our, our current uh, Trudeau liberal government, and you know, like every other government, that government's got its supporters and its detractors, and I'm not gonna weigh in here on that issue, but I think it would be fair to say that um, our current government is brand savvy. I mean, that's, that's something that they evidently take very seriously. And I can't help but think that somebody in the process was wondering whether the, the Sunny Ways brand seems to go quite well with the warm glow of charity. And that part of what was going on here was um, an intentional choice perhaps to brand the government um, with, the, with that warm glow of charity, to be associated with the warm glow of charity, which raises an obvious concern about charity becoming too interconnected um, with, with government. And, and the other thing for me that was going on here was I wondered aloud whether or not there was some confusion about the respective roles to play for charities and, and government. And I can sort of envisage in my mind uh, someone sitting in a, in a government strategy room thinking, um, well, we make the world a better place. Uh, charities make the world a better place. Uh, the logic's irrefutable. We're, we're both involved in the, in the same business. Um, and I'm not sure that that's right. Um, at a certain level of abstraction, that's true. But charities and government aren't in the same business, uh, I don't think. Um, that they employ very different ways of pursuing public good. Uh, and it's important to keep those ways uh, distinct and separate. And so that was, that was really the impetus uh, for the op-ed because I didn't think that, that that part of the story was really getting airtime. And it seems to me to be a material part of, of this conversation. So Adam, that leads nicely to question two. If this is about maintaining the distinction between charity charity and government, why does it matter? What's what's at stake in maintaining that distinction? Yeah, I mean, as I've already uh, alluded to, at, at a certain level of abstraction, um, there is a similarity between uh, charity and government. Um, you know, no, no government brands itself as, as wanting to set out to do harm. Um, likewise, no charity does. They, they share something in common. They, they share a regard for, for public benefit. They uh, share a regard uh, for doing, doing good by others. Um, and that is, that is a commonality that they share. And oftentimes there's, there's overlap and there can be significant overlap uh, between government public policy and charity, specifically in the area of, of healthcare and education where um, um, both, uh, both of those are regarded as charitable purposes. Um, so universities and hospitals and the like are, are registered charities. Um, but once you start to get down into the details and think about the ways that charities go about making the world a better place, I think all of a sudden there are some important distinctions that we need to keep in mind. So I'll, I'll share a personal anecdote and then just so it's not all about me, 
connect that anecdote with a legal concept. Um, when I first applied to law school, um, I wasn't actually sure if I wanted to go. I didn't have any money. I didn't have anyone in my family who was a, who was a lawyer. This was a, a first foray for me and, and anyone in my family to, to go down that route. And when I applied, much to my surprise, I received a letter from the dean not only saying I was admitted, but I received a scholarship called the William G.C. Howland Renewable Entrance Scholarship. And what that meant was that uh, the late uh, Justice William Howland had endowed a scholarship fund um, that was going to pay the entire amount of my tuition, uh, and, and in fact, even draw a surplus beyond that. Um, and every day when I went to law school, they had a picture of him uh, up on the wall. So I'd walk by the picture and look at him and, and wonder, um, you know, wonder what inspires people to share like that and what, what legal infrastructure is there that encourages and rewards and recognizes that kind of other, set, other, other centeredness. Um, and that experience for me had an emotional resonance that I don't think a government choice to lower tuition would have had. I mean, I we can talk about better and worse ways to achieve public good. We can talk about efficient and less efficient ways of redistributing wealth. But I think the thing that really resonated with me at a, at a deep personal level was that somebody made the choice, the voluntary choice to share with me. And when I looked up the late Justice Howland, this wasn't a guy I had anything in common with. I mean, he went to Upper Canada College. I knew where that was, uh, but that's about it. You know, I'd, driv I'd driven by it, but I've never been in there. I mean, we had very different walks in life. And, it's, and, I, and I started, once I started to read about charity law, um, I started to see that we had this body of law that was fundamentally concerned with valuing the choice people make to affirm the equal worth, value, and dignity of total strangers. I mean, that, that was my experience with it. You know, somebody made the choice to share with me, and he didn't have to. Um, he didn't know me. We had nothing in common, quite frankly. Um, but that choice, that choice to affirm my worth, my dignity, my value as a total stranger struck me as intrinsically important. And so when I got to law school, I wanted to study about this area of law, get to know it a little bit better. And much to my further surprise, it turned out the law school didn't teach anything about charity law, neither was any other law school. And that practically continues to be the case. But what I discovered was that charity laws is oriented around a legal construct called public benefit. And when you unpack the, the test for public benefit, you actually, as a, as a legal concept, you encounter something that's modeled very closely after my own personal experience with this. When, when, when donors set up charitable trusts, the law puts them to the test through a public benefit standard. It, it tests, are you willing to benefit a stranger. You, know, you can't set up a charitable scholarship trust for friends and family. It's been tried, the courts have struck it down. We look and test, are you willing to benefit a stranger? Are you willing to voluntarily share your wealth to improve the life prospects of someone who has nothing in common with you other than a shared humanity? Um, and so my own personal experience with this really matched quite closely the legal construct and so I then began to study all the different ways that the law promotes charity and it does it through tax incentives, it does it through property law exemptions, it does it through special rules of trust law. Everywhere you look with charity laws engagement, with the laws engagement with charity, 
you see the law aspiring to promote this out this voluntarism this other centeredness this choice to share and that to me is the answer to your question that's the thing that's worth preserving that's the thing that makes charity a unique way of doing good um and when we look at charity through that lens yes it shares something in, in common with government the, the the desire to do good but it does it in such a different way it does it through the voluntary choice to share with stranger voluntarily formed you know your taxes aren't voluntary and if, and if and if you think they are try not paying them and see what happens um and so that that voluntary aspect of charity that that freely formed choice to share with strangers those are the very things that get diminished when governments approach charity as a brand to be exploited for political purposes and you know it's hard it's hard to see that other centeredness that that ethic of sharing when charity is approached as a political brand and likewise when charities get too entangled with government and i'm not saying they shouldn't ever partner with government or have a relationship with government but when charities get too entangled with government um either because they're pursuing their mission solely through lobbying um or they approach their mission strictly as standby independent contractors it seems to me that those defining features of charity that are that are worth celebrating and worth keeping they start to get diminished you know we don't have charities to to have more government we're we're pretty good at making more government when we want more government we have charities for these other ideals and ethics that i'm referring to and i think my concern is is that when charities get too entangled with government the very things that we want to celebrate and should celebrate about charity are the very things that start to get diminished maybe not eviscerated but they take they take a back seat and so that that was that's really the answer to your question in a nutshell that when charities get too entangled with government i i think we start to see less charity and more government well it's an interesting distinction and one that that i agree was um absent from the hearings or the coverage of the hearings over the course of the last few months uh, as people looked into the we charity issue um, it could very easily have been a for-profit organization that was being questioned by the by the committees and that would suggest to me that the charitable sector itself hasn't done a good job of telling its story and telling why it's different and why people like Chief Justice Howland are important and, and why that legacy should be emulated. But let me move on to, to question three. Apart from the We Charity situation, what else is going on? Are there other recent developments indicating a, an evolving or a, a a concerning relationship between charity and government? Yeah, I mean, one of the, I think one of the key stories over the last decade um, that began, it, it was reignited under the Harper government, but the story goes back a lot further than that, relates to the topic of lobbying and political advocacy, political activities by charities. So just by way of a, a little bit of history and, and how it ties into a current development. Um, we've gone from a position in the 1970s initially taken by um, 
the CRA, then Revenue Canada, that charities couldn't engage in any political activity whatsoever. That that, that was just wholly inconsistent with charitable status. Um, that position wasn't really well supported in law, um, if at all, quite frankly. And so in the 1980s, uh, there were amendments to the Income Tax Act um, that were inspired by, I think, a defensible idea. And the idea was that some political activity is okay, but not too much. And, and I don't think very many people actually disagree with that idea. Some political activity is okay, but not too much. And certainly not uh, you know, par participating in election campaigning on behalf of a, a, a candidate or political party. You can't, you can't have partisan participation. And, and so that ideal made a lot of sense, but the problem that I see as a legal analyst that just recurs on and on and on in the law is we always start off or often start off with good ideas. Charities can do some political activity, but not too much. That's a good idea. But then uh, the wheels fall off when we try and wordsmith that in technical statutory language. And so there were amendments to the act adopted that were meant to allow some political activity, but not too much. And they were poorly drafted, caused ongoing confusion, caused ongoing frustration, inspired case law that, um, trying to think of the polite way to say it, um, wasn't, wasn't very inspired, let me put it that way. I don't, I don't think that those decisions from Canada are, are Canadian export that's seen the light of day in very many other jurisdictions. Um, but the ultimate culprit, culprit here is I think was poorly drawn legislation. So after many years of frustration, um, further inspired by the Harper government um, setting aside funds for a political activities audit program uh, that was not popular to say the least, um, the Trudeau liberals uh, undertook to take a look at these, these political activities rules. And a, a year or two ago, the new rules were adopted. And the new rules, as I understand them, effectively allow charities to do nothing but political advocacy. Okay, so you, you got to think of where, where we started. Where we started uh, with the CRA, then Revenue Canada, with no political activity. Then we transitioned into a period of some political activity, but not too much. Of course, the problem was the rules were horribly drafted. I mean, Bob's participated in those conversations where you've got subject matter experts just to debate the language hours on end and no one actually can agree what they mean. Um, and then rather than just redraft the rules, they went in the direction of just allowing 100% lobbying. Okay, And I guess the concern I would have with that, that dovetails back with our conversation here about charity and its relationship with government, charity and its relationship with, with um, politics, um, is I worry about where the charity goes when the only activity is lobbying. Okay, so let's take Justice Howland. What, what if rather than set up a endow a scholarship for me, he instead creates a lobbying fund to lobby the government for reduced tuition? Is he doing the same thing? Is that the same form of, of voluntary wealth redistribution? Or if rather than relieve poverty, we have charities that campaign against the government, and that's their only activity, campaigning for better poverty intervention, better food security measures from the government. The end is, of course, laudable, but the means used don't seem charitable to me. Calling on government for more government, um, I, I'm, I'm not sure whether that, that should be the singular focus of charitable programming. And so those new rules 
allowing charities to do nothing but lobbying should they choose. And I'm not suggesting a great many charities are doing that, but when, when the rules say you can do that, you are probably going to get new entrants to the sector who will do nothing but do that because the rules bless it. And so I worry about that fundamentally changing um, the sector. In tandem with that, we're also seeing, I think, across the Commonwealth, a greater tendency for charities to be drawn on uh, as contract independent, uh, independent contracting parties for governments to deliver programming. That is also a trend uh, that we're seeing that I think for some of the same reasons raises some of the same concerns. So let me just be clear, when we're talking about political activities or advocacy, we're still talking only about nonpartisan activities, right? You can't that's have correct. that's up to just promote a political party. Correct. The the one feature of the rule that the new rules I think were were correct to keep was this principle that um, you cannot, as a as a registered charity, um, support directly or indirectly um, a political party or candidate for public office. That that remains a feature of the rules, and and I think I don't think that that's controversial. I think that that's widely supported. I think what's more controversial is whether or not we've gone too far in opening the floodgates to allow maybe too much political activity. The you're raising a number of fascinating issues that could take us all day to discuss, but let me go now to question four. The reality is that lots of charities receive lots of funding from government. In fact, governments, government revenue to charities far exceeds philanthropy. Why is it such a problem if governments recruit charities to implement programming on their behalf? And similarly, Lots of charities going back decades petition governments for reforms of law or policies that they think stand in the way of delivering charitable services. Why is this a problem? I would agree that charities have um, a valuable role to play in um, the development of public policy. I'm a very strong supporter of the some political activity, but not too much, some advocacy, but not too much approach. We know that charities have um, valuable knowledge of grassroots communities that perhaps governments don't have as much information about and having a, 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 the opportunity to channel that knowledge into public policy only makes for better public policy. So I don't think there's a problem at, at that end. Um, the issue is, is when that kind of advocacy, advocacy supplants all other activity. I, I think it's, that, that's the issue when, when you, you have the potential for mission drift. Um, likewise, I think that the, 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 the concern over charitable mission drift is I also, also think is, is the similar concern with um, charities getting too entangled or too reliant upon uh, government for um, subvention uh, for funding. Um, and I realize the irony me, of me saying that as a professor at a university, which is heavily government subsidized, heavily government subsidized. Um, and it's not just universities, as you know, a lot of charities receive a lot of government funding. Um, hospitals would be another, another category. And so I'm not suggesting that there's something untoward about it. I think my, my, I think my 
employer would be very upset with me if I was actually successful in convincing anyone that that funding universities by from government would be was a problem. But I do think that that a lot depends on context. And so when we're looking at universities, for example, I'm not too concerned about universities falling into the trap of mission drift at the behest of government. I mean, anyone who's worked at a university knows just how um, deeply entrenched conventions of academic freedom are. Uh, universities are pretty good at staking out their ground and academics are pretty good at letting funding sources know that you pay for the research, you don't buy the outcome. You know, academic conventions of, of academic freedom, I think, give us give a buffer between universities and government. Likewise, hospitals, although I don't deny that there's certainly influence, if, if you write the check, you're going to have an influence on programmatic features, but hospitals operate under a system of professional obligations. There, there are limits as to how far into the, the hospital governments can intrude as a funding source. In other contexts, again, I, I'm not sure there's, it's a problem if charities are being funded by, by government, but I think here's the question that charities need to ask, whose programming is being funded? Is the government funding our programming? And if so, I suppose we could subscribe to a more of the merrier philosophy. What, what would be the problem there? If, if the government's funding your programming, your charitable mission, your unique contribution to public benefit, um, then I'm less concerned. I think the concern though is, and, and, and here's where we, things potentially go off the rails. Once charities start delivering the government's programming, now that's a potential different story. And for, for me, that would be the material question I would wanna know were I considering uh, government uh, funding as a, as a charity, whose who's programming's being funded? Are we just uh, an independent contractor to deliver the government's programming? Or is the government recognizing value in our programming, our unique approach to public benefit? Uh, and as I said, the, the the more charities get entrenched with government, the more you worry that you start to see more of the latter, more of charities delivering the government's program, not the government funding the charities to deliver their programming. So obviously that, that's a question of context. It's, it's a question of degree. It's not a question of, um, there's not a bright line standard. Thank you, Professor Adam Parrishan, for answering our four questions.